So the reading for today is Acts uh, 9, 1 through 19, and it's about Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who come on your name. Call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Thanks, Sam. Hello, good to see you. Uh, if you don't know who I am and I don't know who you are, my name's Paul. I preach here on occasion. My wife is the lovely little lady who hosts, not Matt, Tara. Uh, <laughs> so I could help. And uh, um, the friendly one uh, you all know from Facebook in real life. And then there's me. So. <laughs> uh, Nice to see you and be seen, and for those of you online as well. Uh, I learned something uh, really cool today that I did not know. I learned that uh, there is no real such thing as tides, like the ocean with tides. That's not a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that between the force of the sun and the moon, that it pulls on the oceans. And as we rotate, we rotate between shallow, low tide, and high tide. Like, <laughs> that, it was that 
Well, I, I just thought the moon, Jonathan's asking what I thought it was. I just thought the moon pulled the water out. And then when the earth rotated, the water just came back. But it's actually the sun and the moon together making like this kind of oblong bulge of the oceans. And then we rotate in between that. I don't know, maybe that's just me. But my world, <laughs> wow, we call it tides, but we don't actually have tides. Our, our floating rock rotates between this oblong pulling of the oceans between the sun and moon. I don't know. Anyways, I teach social studies. So that, uh, not science, but that blew my world. I was today's old when I found out the tides don't really exist. Um, but what's really going on is cosmic forces. That's what the tides are, is a pulling of cosmic forces. And uh, I thought that was helpful today because we're looking at the story of Paul and particularly his moment of conversion. But it's actually unhelpful for us to think of it as a conversion. It's, it's oversimplified, like now I know the tides are an oversimplification. Paul's conversion is more of a flip and a fulfillment. When you and I use the word conversion, we might think of someone who's unbelieving who then believes, or someone who worships a different God and now worships ours. But that's not Paul's story. He wasn't an unbeliever in a sense, like he worshiped Yahweh, and so do we. And this moment isn't so much of a conversion as it is a flip and a fulfillment. And so uh, what's going on in Paul's story is it's an expression of a larger story. God made a commitment to a people called the Israelites. And he said, through you, through a covenant with you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to send you into the world to bless them. And this moment in Acts of the early church and the, uh, the story of Paul is far more of a fulfillment than it is the conversion of a person. There's something bigger going on. There's cosmic forces at play. And I want you to see Paul's story couched in a larger story. And I would like you to see your story a part of a bigger cosmic story. And I think Paul's conversion uh, really helps us with that. And so you can't fit God into your story. You fit into his You aren't the author of your story. He's the potter, you're the clay. You have choice, but he's the one writing the story, not you. And what's interesting about this moment in Acts is in the stories preceding and the stories coming after, what we see are a series of events where this story that God's been unfolding cosmically is gonna go out into where the alien lives, the foreigner, the enemy, and the unclean. All the people and the places that are uncomfortable. God is sending his people out. And Paul's story, we find ourselves in and realize it's actually a part of something much bigger. So 
what I want you to do is I want you to get a picture a little bit of who Paul is. Paul uh, is a very devoted Jew who is a Pharisee, and his job is to help Israelites follow the law and stay true to the covenant. That's his job. This is a very learned, devoted man who has a vocation devoted to God. This is why the idea of conversion is unhelpful. This guy believes in Yahweh, a God who would come and liberate his people and lead them to the promised land and bless the world. That's what we believe too. And he studied and worked and prayed and meditated. And the amount of scripture he had to know to get where he was is impressive. So this is someone steeped in the story of God. And he's living it out vocationally. We actually even know that Paul kind of sees himself in light of Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Phinehas. Because the story has been, God said to Israel, you be my people, I'll be your God, have no other gods before me. And then what does Israel do? Have all sorts of other gods before him. And then God sends judges and prophets, and he sends foreign nations and rulers to judge the people and bring them back to the covenant. So Elijah and Phinehas are two prophets who they're doing just that. But they're particularly zealous prophets. In fact, they're a little on the violent side, violent towards false gods. And Paul kind of sees himself in light of these characters, our characters. We read about Phinehas in Elijah. So did Paul, and he studied them, and he wanted to be like them. And he wanted to make sure that Israel did not worship any false gods. And so when he heard about this movement called the way, that this small-time rabbi named Jesus claimed to be the son of God, he thought, well, that's just one of a many long line of false worship. That's Israel getting diverted from the path of the covenant. Because if Israel's faithful to the covenant, one day God's gonna come and free us from Rome. We're gonna have our own land. We're gonna have our own governance. We're gonna be a free people. And that's what freedom looked like for Saul. And so he, with zealousness, and Elijah and Phineas in mind is going to help Israel follow the laws and maintain the covenant. So he's gonna stamp out this little Jesus the way movement. So when he approaches the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council in Israel, Jerusalem, he says, I need paperwork that allows me to go outside of Jerusalem and round up all the Jews who have fled and they said, yeah, absolutely. Here's your papers, off you go. And so he takes this authority, this zealousness, this devotion to Yahweh on the road to Damascus to root out idol worship. And what's really, really interesting about Paul is that I think even though at this moment, 
he is an enemy to Jesus, we can kind of find a lot in common. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't issued the witness of a stoning. I haven't, I haven't uh, watched a stoning. But even though Paul was a violent man who signed off on violent things, he worshiped God, he believed in the covenant, he meditated, he prayed, and he wanted to show his devotion by being zealous against idols. I mean, I don't know, that sounds familiar. Like, isn't that what we're doing, <laughs> right? And so Paul, the enemy of Jesus and the church, is on the road to Damascus. And he's living out this, this vision, this story of being God's people. And I would like to think that as Paul is on the road, not only is he talking to the people he's journeying with, I think he's recalling all the old stories. Thinking of Elijah, thinking of Phineas, maybe Isaiah. Isaiah got to be in God's presence. Isaiah thought that when he was in God's presence, he might die. But instead of being died, he was healed and commissioned. I bet Paul wanted an encounter with Yahweh the same way Elijah did, the same way Isaiah did, the same way Moses did. I mean, he was devoted. Who was a better Jew than Paul? Nobody. Nobody was a better Jew, more devoted to the story of his people than this man. But he was a violent enemy of the church. And the very story of Jesus was offensive to him. The Messiah was going to liberate Israel from external oppression. But here comes a lowly carpenter from humble origins who claims to be the son of God, does miracles on the Sabbath, seems irreligious of many Jewish customs, and then dies at the hand of the Romans. Jesus doesn't overthrow them. He suffers their unjust punishment and rises again on the third day. Like, it's not just that the way is this other idol worship movement. It's the very nature of Jesus is offensive to Paul. There's just no way it's the Messiah. And so Paul's on the road in his company, thinking through these stories, feeling zealous for his cause, living out the story of his people, retelling himself the stories. And he gets his moment in front of the creator. And he gets knocked down by the light and the voice. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not my people, why do you persecute me? And Saul's first words are, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And so he's blind and he's sent to a far off town and he's blind for three days and he waits for a man named Ananias. And I think just, I actually think Ananias is the real hero of the story. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
but he, he's healed by Ananias, and he spent three days blind. And then Paul is commissioned, well, he's discipled, and then he's commissioned to go on his journeys. So Paul gets his Isaiah 6 moment in the presence of God, and he is not destroyed. He is redeemed. This moment for Paul isn't a conversion, it's an apocalypse. And what I mean by apocalypse is it's the end of one world and it's the beginning of another. See, when you and I think of the word apocalypse, we might think of a genre of book and movies where the world ends because of zombies or something, right? Or an earthquake and there's a big crack and everyone falls in or something. Um, great, really fun movies. Uh, but deep impact, those are a good one, deep impact. Um, but there's these apocalyptic, that's what we think, the world's over, but that's not what the ancient world thought. The word apocalyptic meant the end of one world and the beginning of another. In that moment, when Paul encountered the resurrected Christ, his story was flipped on its head and fulfilled at the same time. Because if God decreates, he recreates. If God kills, then he brings back to life. That's God's story. That's who he is. That's what he does. Even to his worst enemies. This is a shattering moment. And I think we need to feel a little sympathy for Paul. Can you imagine being that wrong about everything? Think about it. He is fundamentally wrong about everything he's devoted his life to. Those three days when he was blind waiting for Ananias, oof, I bet those were tough. I bet he shed a lot of tears. I mean, his world was destroyed. He got it wrong. He knew all the stories. He knew all the heroes. He emulated them. He knew there needed to be a Messiah. He devoted his whole life, even his vocation, to maintaining the covenant. And he was wrong about the end of that story. That's not an intellectual exercise. That is a total deconstruction of your life. That is brutal. And it's not just the flip, it's the fulfilled. I bet in those three days, and I know subsequently in his discipleship, Paul reheard all the stories in a new way. He saw Jesus as the end result. He was decreated, but he was recreated and renewed and full of faith. And his eyes were opened, not literally, but metaphorically, spiritually, and he saw the real story that leads to Jesus. I think these are the three days that fueled and, and reoriented his zealousness for Jesus. So this is an apocalyptic moment. This is not a conversion. This is a man who gets his throne room moment. He's the enemy of God, and he is brought near and he is redeemed. This should give you and I great hope.
especially since we're not Jewish people. Most of us, maybe there's some of you in here, I don't know. So um, there's some elements to this story that I think are helpful to look at, and I'd like to see your, I hope you see your story in connection to them. Uh, Damascus, the road to Damascus, historically, this land was in dispute. Back when God said to Abraham, anywhere you set your foot, that'll be yours, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set their foot in Damascus. But over the years, it was occupied not by Israel, and the people living in it worshiped other gods. It was disputed territory. And the story God is telling through Paul's story is, hey, all those areas you think are contested, they belong to me. Those places of idol worship, of foreign rulers, you're not sure if I'm Lord there. Jesus' appearance to Paul says, I'm Lord there. Those are my people. That's my land, because I said so. That's not how Paul would have seen Damascus. He would have seen it as contested, an unknown. And God is saying to him in that moment, it is known and it is mine. Violence. Paul was present for brutal violence. He issued brutal violence. He engaged in brutal violence. At this time, no one was more of an enemy of Christ and the church, the early church, than Paul. And uh, Jesus says to Ananias, he does not know how much he will have to suffer for my sake. Paul actually ends up enduring much of the violence he doled out. I find this an uncomfortable thought. I thought salvation meant that when things were forgiven, they were gone. But Paul endures the violence, the very same violence he doled out on others, God allows him to experience and suffer. And the story God is saying about himself through Paul is, is I don't use power to coerce. I persevere violence to grow. Jesus doesn't make power plays. He doesn't build on government policies. He suffers violence. He isn't the, he isn't the source of it. He doesn't use that to get his way. And so Paul actually is far more effective in telling God's story and living God's story by enduring violence than he is by issuing it. Rather than using force to keep people in line with the covenant, he suffers force unjustly and the church grows well beyond Jerusalem and into the world. This is who God is and this is what he does. This is his story since the beginning. He doesn't make power plays. He suffers under them for the sake of his enemy. Blindness. 
Paul is blind for three days. And those three days, I think, are supposed to make us think about the three days of Jesus in crucifixion. But I, in his moment of blindness, when he actually sees the story for what it is for the first time, I, it's interesting to me, his response versus Ananias. When the Lord appears to Saul, Saul says, who are you, Lord? When the Lord appears to Ananias, Ananias says, I'll go. Yes, Lord, I'll go. In order to respond by faith to this moment of apocalypse, to an encounter with the risen Lord, Paul moves from a who to a yes. Paul has to become blind to what he thought he knew in order to say yes to the risen Lord. And that's why I just think Ananias is incredible. And again, I think this moment, Ananias is, is actually like Isaiah. See, that's the great irony to me as I think Paul's walking down the road to Damascus and he's, he's thinking of himself as like Isaiah. Who will go for us, Lord, to root out the idol worshipers? I will. Send me, I'll go. I'll take the letter from the Sanhedrin. I'll arrest all of them and if they don't wanna come, I'll kill them. I'll do it. Like he's super eager. And then after he's blind and waiting, the Lord appears to Ananias and says, I want you to go to this man named Saul who's waiting for you. And Ananias' first response is, uh, Saul of Tarsus? Like the guy that was at Stephen's stoning? The one who's currently chasing us out to Damascus? Like that Saul? You want me to go to that Saul? And then God says, yes. And so I'm not bugged. I don't think it's a faithless response on Ananias' part. I would have that response too. Like, uh, sorry, which Saul? You know, really that one? And, and then when God says, yes, he's gonna be my instrument, Ananias says, yes, Lord. He says, yes, Lord. He's the true Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, commissioned to go preach to his enemies, and he didn't want his enemies saved, so he ran the other direction. Ananias meets the risen Lord in a vision and says, go to my enemy, go to your enemy, that he might be saved in my instrument. And Ananias says, yes, God's story is about being near to your enemies, not far. To the contested land, to the foreigner, to the unclean. Later on, Peter's gonna have a vision about that sheet of meat that is, uh, that is considered unclean, and God says, I've made this clean. To all those places that we find objectionable, God says, I'm sending you there. I'm near to those people. I'm close to my enemies, I'm not far away. And I wanna to minister to them and I wanna use you. Will you love your enemy? See, that's God's story through Paul's story. And so we've got two responses in the story. Ananias says, yes, Lord. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? 
And we're getting an invitation. The world is inviting you to write your own story. I hear it all the time in the school system. Bugs me, because I think it's hokum. Uh, so unhelpful. Uh, they go on the PA, and they go, hey, kids, remember, uh, you just get to pick whatever you want to be. So literally, they say, go away, form your identity, come back and go, hello, world, this is who I am. Like, we're just teaching children to write their own story, as if somehow you form yourself in a vacuum. What silly nonsense. Like, uh, you know, you have a parent, you have an image of what it's like to be a parent. And then you become a parent, and then I'm not just parenting anybody, I'm parenting Avalyn. I'm parenting Bailey and Colton and Charlotte. So whatever ideas I had about myself as a parent is now confronted by the reality of parenting these children. I can have whatever concept I want about what I'll be like in marriage, and then I get married to Tara. So marriage is just married to Tara. I don't get to form my identity outside of my kids and Tara. So look, we have free will. We have choices. They matter. God honors them. But the story you're being invited to tell about yourself by this day and age is that you're the author and that you're telling your own story and that somehow you'll find fulfillment in writing this story. It's not true. It's hokum. God is not interested in absolving you or like absorbing you into his story. It's not like when you join the grand cosmic story of God that you become a nameless cog in the wheel. No, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb, right? He knows all the hairs on your head. That he's deeply and personally acquainted with you. This is a personal salvation, but ooh, that's just one part of it. Paul became fulfilled when his story was flipped. Not uh, whitewashed into some standard cookie-cutter version of a Jew. He became more of Paul, not less. You are going to submit your identity to a story. You are not worthy of writing your own story. Neither am I. And that's the sales pitch I hear every day in the school system. Write your own story. It is not God's story. Now again, you have a choice. You can be like Saul, who are you, Lord? Or you can be like Ananias, yes, Lord. You have a choice and it matters. But the story of God is that he is writing your story and you fit into his and you actually become more of you, not less. When you have your apocalyptic moment and your world is turned upside down and what you thought was true or what you thought was gonna be true is no longer gone, a new world appears before you. And Jesus, the risen Lord, is at the center of it. And he draws nears to you, even when you were his enemy. This is God's story. Your story is a part of his story. And we see that in Paul. The greatest threat to all of this, to what God has been trying to do since Adam and Eve, what God uh, burst out of Judaism into the whole world so that you and I, by faith, might identify with Jesus too. 
The, the undermining factor in all of that has been sin. Your greatest problem is sin, and more importantly, the sin that you're blind to. And I'm worried that the sin that we're blind to is this idea that we're the author of our own story. I'm not. I don't just get to decide to be a dad and then tell my kids, deal with it. I mean, I've tried sometimes. It never works. I have to be a dad to them. Whose story is your life serving? Are you existing to serve your own version of your story? You're not worthy of it. Neither am I. Sin is your greatest problem. Not politics, not systematic racism, not like all of those things are bad and I think God cares about them. But the fundamental issue is sin because the reason there's bad government is because people have sinful hearts, right? Like all the reasons bad things are out there is because people are sinful. And it's not just sin that's the problem, it's the sin you don't even know you're blind to. I don't know about you, but I just... Uh, all sorts of sin I'm, sure, I'm not even aware of. And then I encounter the risen Lord. The Holy Spirit speaks to me, and I have to see myself in a new way. My whole sense of self is flipped on its head. But when I submit that to Jesus, I'm fulfilled. Because I don't have to write the meaning of that story. And in that moment, in that moment of apocalypse, I'm not gonna say, who are you, Lord? I'm gonna say, yes, Lord, send me. Because the story is, is that God made a covenant with the people and he said, I'm gonna bless the whole world through you. And they failed that covenant, just like you and me. And then this primarily Jewish thing called the way had to move out of Jewishness and identity into the world and become a multi-ethnic international movement. That's the story of God from beginning to end. That you and I would not say, who are you, Lord? But yes, Lord, and be sent into every disputed corner of our heart and this world to say that Jesus is the risen Lord. That's the story. That's where all this is going. And more than that, God is interested in renewing the whole of creation. This isn't just a personal inward realization. Creation will be restored. Nations will be restored. Ethnicities will be restored. Cultures will be redeemed. Languages will be redeemed. Art will be beautiful on whole new levels. This is the story that you're a part of. But the sin that threatens your yes, Lord, and turns it into a who, is this idea that you're writing it. It's the sin I think our culture is blind to. That's the problem. And the other externalities, which are issues, will change, because God cares about them. I want to uh, just finish by reading you the lyrics of my favorite worship song. 
It's called Behold Now the Kingdom by John Michael Talbot. And I feel like it sums up Paul's story and mine, frankly, because I just feel like I'm a bumbling fool who lives inside his head and then all of a sudden encounters the Holy Spirit and goes, Jesus. And then what I thought I knew, I didn't. And I'm just walking down the road of life, trying to be devoted, just like Paul, but not always seeing the story. And I need an encounter with Jesus to show me who I am and how I fit into who he is. A multitude followed a man, a prophet who spoke words of wisdom, and they listened, trying to understand the paradox of his great truth. Isn't it paradoxical that he flips stories and fulfills them at the same time? He said, blessed be those who are poor, for you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And blessed be those who are weak, for you shall inherit great strength. Blessed be those who are children, for you shall be counted as wise. And blessed be the blind man, for you shall see with new eyes. Behold now the kingdom. See with new eyes. Blessed be those of compassion, for you shall inherit compassion. Blessed be those who forgive, for you shall be forgiven. You shall receive consolation only in reaching to give. And only in dying for others can you be reborn to live. This is the upside-down kingdom story of God that you and I ought to make our lives about. He is the author. He is the potter. We are the clay. Are you going to be a yes, Lord, or a who are you, Lord, when you face those moments of apocalypse? Worship team, can you come on up, please? I want to finish with this prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers by St. Thomas Aquinas. Father, in your goodness, grant me the intellect to comprehend you, the perception to discern you, and the reason to appreciate you. In your kindness, endow me with the diligence to look for you, the wisdom to discover you, and the spirit to apprehend you. In your graciousness, bestow on me a heart to contemplate you, ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and a tongue to speak of you. In your mercy, confer on me a conversation pleasing to you, the patience to wait for you, and the perseverance to long for you. Grant me a perfect end in your holy presence. Amen.